sunbeams, full of grace, face full of God rays, just waiting to trace the earth with its bright fingertips poking through the clouds, mountain peaks and folds shape the sky, and trees in ruts and grooves and smooth and jagged lines, through curves and spinning limbs, climb to catch the light, all shapes found by winds and waters, flowing fluid, creeks and streams, bounding rivers and ocean waves, hurtling, burrowing, and crashing in on themselves, spilling from clouds and waves and torrents, gliding as soft mists. All that is and ever was shines on the surface, as slow reflections on still lakes, just waiting to be melted with. Notice how it practically shimmers when it's seen, as if every glimmering surface shines in gratitude the moment it's greeted. See how it meets us, boundlessly beautiful, even when we pass it unknowing, forgetful, lost in daydreams. Let us stop a moment. We were only dreaming, after all. The mind, the blame, the broken game of forgetting how far we've come. There is only one thing here, unraveling a thousand ways at once. Yet, it cradles us even as we shy away even as we resist its tug and grind against our will to evolve, we evolve and evolve and evolve. Old dreams fade in the face of your reflection. Find myself in stasis, savoring the connection. For of all these fleeting moments, I can bring nothing back. No word can break the surface. You must dive in to find it. Head first, heart open, clear of expectations. To see for yourself. And if you see it, let it be known that hope can only be created. Otherwise, it remains a fool's conviction, a resistance to what is, that clings for life to wishful thinking. A leaf floating by, stirred up from the fathomless well of this potentiality, sings as one with the law of emergence. It calls for right purpose, a reason imbued with meaning. And I have a hunch that, only in service, 
they had been known. Yet, who isn't afraid to shed their skin? And how many times must this mind fool at recorporating this person? I long to let it go, to be freed of the dizzying spell, the attachment to this moral coil, to be or not to be. Now that is the question. Welcome back, everybody, to Actual Eye Podcast. I'm uh, doing my best to figure out live streaming situation here, and I'm multicasting to uh, Twitch, to YouTube, and Facebook at once right now. If this is working correctly, we'll see. I'm recording video of this as well, just in case it doesn't work out. Thank you all for being here. Today we're going to look for the cure together, the cure to what ails us individually, collectively as a species, and we're not going to find any one exact cure, but we're going to try and get to the roots of what is causing the myriad crises, crises facing our world today, and the crises that we face within, individually, as we've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, we may be the change we wish to see, and perhaps this is the most effective way of changing the world changing it from the inside out and it's asking a lot and you know I'm no great authority of knowledge Uh, all I have to share is an invitation to recognize the inherent interconnectedness of all life the oneness that surrounds and flows through everything and everyone. We are made up of sunlight and earth. We are a mystery of this cosmos. We are like self-awakening extensions of this cosmos with a particular earthen flavor to us being that we are earthlings. We think ourselves separate because our minds are so great at recognizing distinctions between the various objects in the world around and various other people. Which reminds me of this great quote by Ramana Maharshi. I know I've mentioned this before, but it is prescient. When Ramana was asked by one of his students about how to deal with others, He said, there are no others. And what an orientation to come from. The sense of separation and distinction is a play of our minds. Yet there is an experience that all of the great 
mystery schools, wisdom schools, the esoteric mystical sides of every great world religion. Recognize there is the supreme unifying principle of life, as Martin Luther King said, love, somehow the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality, the unconditionality of love allows us a wider perspective. We are able to consider many more perspectives, thus widening our awareness, our capacity for understanding the various ways of looking at things, and perhaps in doing so we may also develop ways that allow us to overcome the great crises we face within and in the wider world. I'm barely keeping track of my train of thought here. We came here for a reason today. There was a video I watched recently with a gentleman named Nate Hagens and another gentleman named Daniel Schmachtenberger. Schmachtenberger or Schmachtenberger, I'm not sure. But it was beautiful. It's part three of a series, and it's an ongoing dialogue. And Nate is an economist, and Daniel Schmachtenberger is a systems theorist. I guess they're both systems theorists, and we'll explore systems thinking just a little bit today. Um, but they have been following the great many existential, meaning uh, life-threatening crises that our species faces um, for over a decade and longer. And in doing so, they have recognized that perhaps there is a way for us to approach these extremely complex challenges. Maybe there is a mode of being that allows us the greatest capacity and the greatest hope of beginning to solve the challenges that we face. And, uh, you know, it's no stretch at this point in history. Um, I feel I can say that just about everybody in the world recognizes that we are in particularly disruptive, destabilized times. The rate of change seems to be accelerating, and there are many, many different challenges facing us individually and in our societies and in the wider world. I don't have to list them off right now. What we're looking for is a way to even begin to approach all of this. Actionable hope, not just some naive, flippant hope, but actionable hope. So, before we begin to try and take apart and understand the complex challenges that we face, how may we work together and optimize our own individual selves to be the most effective change that we wish to see 
So I'm going to share the screen with you guys here. And let's, uh, let's hope that I'm doing this correctly. This is a learning experience. I'm doing this late at night so that if I goof, no big deal. Okay, you can see that. There's the poems that we just read from September 24th and September 25th were those two, and you can uh, check them out on my page, Christopher.Kinley on Instagram. Uh, there's photos that go along with all the poetry I write. If you're interested, feel free to join them. You can also join us at actualeye.podcast on Instagram. Search us out. We're on YouTube, and we are on Facebook. We're on many places. So, yeah, we're on all the major podcast networks as well. So Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. And uh, your likes and subscribes help this cast reach more people so if you think that this is even moderately useful or you enjoy any aspect of it there's a lot of different uh, episodes so far then uh, you know share with friends and family uh, or at least drop a like and subscribe and it really does it helps this podcast reach more people uh, because of all of you listening the podcast has already been heard over 70,000 times in dozens of countries around the planet and we get like a hundred or more new listens every day, which is super humbling. Um, never expected that, but I'm thankful. Thankful for it. You know, I, I really want to get ego out of the way. And I just want to deliver something as true as can possibly come through this beam because I am gravely concerned for our world and I have been since I was a teenager and I started to begin to recognize that things seemed off and we didn't seem like we were headed in a good direction now I don't know, I just follow this natural compulsion and uh, I offer this invitation. It seems that when we avoid what is increases our anxiety and increases our depression, it's like our body has this physiological uh, way of showing us when we're not doing something that shows up as anxiety and depression, but that is there because we are not being wholly present to the moment, to our hearts, to our deepest, most loving desires for the world and for our family and friends. We can realign with that purpose. We can fall in love with this world just as it is with all of its faults all of our failings and we can work together to make it a better place for those who come after I can only imagine the distress that young people must be feeling particularly children when they see that the adults are not getting along and 
worse. They're not able to agree on anything. They don't even seem, in large part, interested in conciliation or compromise. That's got to be very unsettling. I remember feeling shades of that when I was younger, and I can only imagine how much more magnified it is today. So, this is a nonpartisan podcast. We're not taking anyone's side. We're taking the side of love and this planet, and we as Earthlings, we as extensions of this planet, who are not so separate as we think ourselves to be from each other or from the world around us. I don't want to come off as preachy here either. I, uh, I just want to share. some bit of hope so here's something really cool um, a podcast that I was listening to recently this is uh, Daniel on the left this is Nate Hagens on the right Nate Hagens runs this website The Great Simplification and there's several uh, great videos amazing videos on there that are basically outlining the challenges that we face, and I'll read a little bit from the website right now. The Great Simplification with Nate Hagens is a podcast that explores the system science underpinning the human predicaments. Conversation topics span human behavior, monetary economic systems, Nate being an economist, energy, ecology, geopolitics, and the environment. The goal of the show is to inform more humans about the path ahead and inspire people to play a role in our collective future. Guests will be a wide range of scientists, leaders, activists, thinkers, and doers. And uh, the preface for the show is that we have spent the last half century harnessing enormous amounts of fossil energy to build a world of complexity like nothing seen before. In the coming century, humanity will experience a great simplification beginning with the onset of financial and economic turbulence, followed by contraction. The ensuing simplification will be among the most significant events ever experienced by our species. This idea is being brought forth by systems theorists, various scientists that have been studying the myriad existential crises facing our species. And we have a term for the myriad existential crises. We call it the metacrisis. And what we're looking for is a meta-solution. Not just one solution, but many solutions. And what is at the root of all of those solutions? How can we develop ways of overcoming such seemingly impossible challenges? Well. Daniel Schmachtenberger is going to speak on that now. Daniel Schmachtenberger is one of the founding members of the Consilience Project. I should have brought their website up too, but I'll share a link for you all. Um, what I would highly recommend is to go and look for Nate Hagens on YouTube. Search The Great Simplification or search Nate Hagens and you'll find him. Now we're going to uh, listen as these two dialogue on how we may approach the metacrisis.
I'm with you on that. Um, okay, going back to the original uh, choreography. Okay, the one thing I wanted to share here about worldviews and meta narratives, real quick, um, and then we go back. If you would have somebody in your team put in the show notes the conversations between David Bohm and Krishnamurti, the link to that, some of the most beautiful things recorded on video that um, I watched and influenced me growing up. And they were in this very deep inquiry about what is the fundamental nature of the problems in the world and what's the fundamental nature of human conflict and poor human choices. And they both shared really insightful frames on it. Uh, Krishnamurti's was, you know, when he said, the highest stage of intelligence is to observe without evaluation, meaning we actually don't see the world. We see the world through the very limited lens through which we meaning make it. And um, if you can see the world, if you can sense more deeply, then you can do better sense making. But I can only, I can't sense make stuff I didn't even take in, and I'm not going to take it in if I'm pushing it through filters too quickly. Um, so that's very relevant. But I'm actually going to emphasize the one Bohm shared here. Bohm said the fundamental cause of all the problems in the world, environmental war, all the way down to family conflict is what he called a fragmented consciousness. And so he talked about wholeness and the implicate order. And that, because remember, he studied with Einstein, and Einstein said it's an optical delusion of consciousness to believe there are separate things. There is, in reality, one thing we call universe. And it's such a deep thing to think about what Einstein was saying, because it's like, I think of myself as a separate human a lot of times, but what am I without the sun? I don't exist at all, right? What am I without the electromagnetic field? I don't exist. What am I without the Higgs boson? I don't exist. What am I without plants or algae or the biosphere or the ozone layer? So I, me as a separate thing is actually a misnomer. It doesn't even exist. It's a, it's a what Einstein called a delusion of consciousness to believe that there are parts that just because there's distinction, we think they're separable and they're not separable. So then, of course, in that delusion, we can try to optimize for a part at the expense of something else, either on purpose or without knowing it, and we cause a lot of problems. If you do it without knowing it, we call it m mistake theory and externalities. If you do it intentionally, we call it conflict theory, war, oppression, whatever. So David Bohm said the underlying cause of all the problems is not perceiving from wholeness first. And it's so true that like the generator function of the, the generator function, the deepest thing starts there, which is if you think about it, in terms of, I can try to benefit myself in the moment at the expense of my future self. That's the one marshmallow activities. But that's the connection to my, my temporally momentary self and not to the wholeness of myself across time. And so the, the addictive hit in the moment that messes up my future life is, this, uh, is a theory of trade-offs based on not actually seeing the wholeness of myself across time. I can try to benefit one part of myself at the expense of another part, which is all of our internal conflicts, or myself relative to someone else, advantaging myself relative to them is traditional conflict, or I try to advantage somebody else at my own expense, martyring and codependence, which ends up creating resentment and passive aggressiveness and problems, or my in-group relative to an out-group, or my species relative to the biosphere. And when you recognize the interconnectedness, you see that all of those are short-term pump and dumps. And that if you see the interconnectivity of the whole thing, none of those 
parts can authentically and enduringly be optimized independent of all the other ones. So we can get into how we do this systems framing, and we should, but I hold in terms of the the deepest way to look at it is that particular pattern of perception and identity. Two comments. One, that was trippy. Um, two, you made me think that maybe instead of refining and simplifying the meta narrative so that more people can understand it, which is my vocation right now, it may be more productive to boost the number of humans that are in a place where they perceive their role as a whole, as part of the whole, like you were saying, yes. you know, I mean, we need more, a much orders of magnitude, more humans from that cognitive yes. development space that are able to see that that's more important than, Hey, there's climate change, there's energy depletion, there's, nuclear etc there's ai all that stuff it, it might seem like i'm forcing things uh as a fit here but i i believe that the ancient wisdom traditions had wise people that saw similar things and encoded them differently <clears throat> it's said by uh <clears throat> many uh, vedic philosophers that the bhagavad-gita the great kind of scripture of one of them of hinduism chapter 2 verse 48 is fundamental um established in yoga perform action yoga means union with all that is and it's this yoga stakuru karmani is the quote and it says established in yoga or, or union with all that is from the place where you recognize that your existence doesn't exist without everything else and from the place where you cognitively, but also experientially get that, where there's an intimacy with all life, then act from there. Spontaneous right action emerges from that place. And when in the Bible it says, seek ye first the kingdom and all these things shall be added onto you. The place at which everything is sons and daughters of the same reality, right? The place at which there is a sense of the sacredness of all life and the union with it, then right action starts to be informed from there. I do think it is a different orientation from which sense-making and meaning-making happen differently and inform choice-making differently. Okay. That's Daniel Schmachtenberger. Um, what a tremendous statement. Spontaneous right action. It's, uh, it's a very Buddhist concept. But it's also an ancient Christian concept. It's known throughout wisdom schools around the world. You hear it again and again in all of these various schools of wisdom. This non-dual notion of oneness. Um, I happened upon those videos between David Bohm, colleague of uh, Einstein, and Jiddu Krishnamurti some years ago. Um, and they floored me. Uh, I had been listening to Jiddu Krishnamurti for some time, um, who was known as the world teacher. And there's an amazing story behind Krishnamurti, but maybe we'll explore that later. Um, anyway, he had conversations with David Bohm. They became friends at one point, and they had this series of dialogues that they recorded over the course of over a year, I believe, several dialogues, each of them over an hour. And they were wrestling with this very subject 
Um, how Daniel happened upon that when he was so young, um, he must have had amazing parents um, to have the access, understand that he was homeschooled. He talks about that in this episode. Um, but, you know, they must have had these these uh, recordings, these dialogues on VHS tape or something. I don't know how he came across them, but he did. And uh, what a boon. What a helpful thing to come across when you're when you're so young and what a great gift to have uh, somebody who has lived their life cognizant of this so heady realization, um, the sense of the sacred, the sense of that which transcends Is something that humans have been wrestling with for eons. Yet, as I mentioned, all the ancient wisdom schools have recognized as the supreme unifying principle of life, the sense of oneness we can all experience through various uh, methods. There's breathing techniques, there's fasting, there's sleep deprivation, there's vision quests, um, there's sitting in a cave in pitch dark and meditating for days on end. There's meditating for years. There's plant medicines. Um, there's surrender. There's both inward and outward ways of accessing the ineffable, the transcendent great mystery, the source of this existence. It remains a mystery, yet it can be known experientially. And everybody has access to this. It is an inbuilt capacity for us as humans. So yeah, that's uh, that's Daniel Schmachtenberger. That's Nate Hagens. There's one more part I wanted to share from this video um, where Daniel goes a bit further into it. In fact, it looks like I actually noted two more parts. So we're going to go ahead and zoom ahead now to around 103.06. Here we go. Day. And then I just, I couldn't think about anything else because I'm like, wait, we're just focused on our own little life going well. And there are billions of other sentient beings that are just being completely fucking tortured and then murdered in a torturous way. Like, how can my, what's wrong with my species? And how can I just be focused on my own personal life and be stoked when that's happening? Like, I can't. Like, you, you'd have to be so disconnected that you're a sociopath in a way to just be focused on your own life and stoked. And, I, and that was the beginning of feeling very suicidal about these things for me. Um, because I'm like, I, th this planet is like the way that we're operating is so fucked. I just can't be complicit with it. I want out. It doesn't make sense. And then I'm like, well, that doesn't help any of the animals. And so I can't do that. <laughs> and then I'm like, but I also can't just feel like my life is a success with that being the case. So like the only, I can't kill myself, but I, for my life to succeed, theirs has to be better. So how do we fix factory farms? And of course that was the first one. Then it went from factory farms to also whaling and then overfishing and then 
fair cutting of the forest. And then it started to look at extreme poverty of people and it just grew. But it's that insight of like, there is no, there's no way to actually be sane in the world and see it clearly and then just hold our life separate from everything else. So the only way through for me is actually how do we make a, how do we make a more sane, kind, just world? And I think different people get exposed to things at different points, but if they have some time and space to feel, it's a very natural human process. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. This makes me think about the period of time during the war in Iraq leading up to the war in Iraq. Um, I was doing a lot of reading. I was very concerned about that war before it even began. And I was searching for ways to understand how we may stop the evil of wars of resource acquisition and control the, these kinds of things like all of the humans and, and their sense of separation and division and their warring and their conquest and their conquering and their torturing and murdering of each other um, it really disturbed me because it was real and I was really also disturbed by how the media, the major corporate media channels from Fox to CNN covered that war and also covered 9-11 with their edits of the plane flying into the towers over and over and over again for each commercial break, cinematic blockbuster suspenseful music, explosion sound effects, target graphics over maps of the U.S., war on terror, and everyone was talking terror, 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 and we, we gave up a lot of our civil liberties to put together a massive surveillance state that ended up wrapping around the world. And all of this felt very wrong. The military-industrial complex, that being the business of war, the weapons proliferators, profiteers, the energy sector that profits from war as well, the drug manufacturers that wanted to get control of opium in Afghanistan, so on and so forth. I'm reading about all of this and I'm like, it seems like we keep on making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And as our technolo technological capacity increases, um, the threat to the well-being of the planet also increases. And I, I remember reading one day, because I had gone to various demonstrations, uh, including the major uh, protest in D.C. before the war began. It was what most people would call an anti-war protest. It was the largest simultaneous protests in world history, uh, being not only in D.C., but dozens of cities across the U.S. and around the world, Paris, France, Sydney, Australia, Tokyo, Japan, thousands of people out on the streets protesting the war before it even began, something the world had never seen. 
and and reading about revolutions and why they fail, I learned about this idea that instead of framing it as anti-war, we can frame it as pro-peace because what we resist persists. That's a very reliable cause and effect that you can notice. What we resist persists. And and I felt that. That really clicked for me. And I realized then, all this time that I was spending in activism trying to affect the outer, that of course doesn't really work. Um, perhaps I could spend by changing within. Because I also ended up reading uh, that if you want to change the world, you must change yourself. Be that change you wish to see, all of that. And that insight kept chiming like a bell over and over and over again in my awareness. And I had studied um, meditation. I'd read the Tao of Pooh in the day of Piglet when I was younger. Um, I'd gotten into to Buddhism and the idea of meditation. And it was uh, around this time when I recognized that if I wish the world to change, then I should really also change within. Uh, that I actually begin to meditate in earnest a little bit more often than I had when I started. But the realization grew and grew and grew. The most effective change comes from the inside out because as we find that well of peace within, we may naturally radiate that peace in the wider world. There is not an effortfulness to it. There is actually a surrender to love. Something about service seems to put us into the state of communion with Source so that we may live as Source, as an extension, self-aware extensions of this planet and this miraculous cosmos. What a wonder. It's like we lose that sense of wonder that we had when we were young. And one doesn't have to cast back into some prior state of immaturity to access wonder, no, we always have access to wonder. That's why we listen to music and we go to movies and and all of that. Because we love that feeling of awe. We love that feeling of wonder. And it's here, ever available. Just look up when you're outside. See the sky. See the trees moving in the wind. See the ongoing miracle that we are cast within that nobody has any explanation for, yet here we are. And we think ourselves separate, yet we truly are trading atoms with everything around us all the time. We 
truly are, as Daniel pointed out, made up of sun and earth. And we are also the products of the conditioning of our environment, those that we grew up around, the TV shows we watched, the music we listened to. We are all making each other. We are all taking part in something that is unspeakable. Yet, when we find ourselves rooted in love, there is this sense of interconnectedness, this sense of belonging, and a meaningfulness that is richer and greater and more fulfilling than any temporary salve, than any distraction, than any cookie or candy or anything that we can put into our bodies as we do to try and fill this void in our hearts. So, let's move on to the last clip. I'm going to go ahead to 1.12.36. We have to figure that stuff out. Everything we've talked about today that we didn't intend to talk about is from where we approach figuring those things out, right? Where it's not against the bad guys. It is for the thriving of life. It's not premature certainty of either the naive possibility or the cynical impossibility, but something that has been through both of those and holds a deeper humility about how much is in the unknown unknown set, including possible solutions. Um, and it's a place that doesn't think that we get real security on a little planet with a thin biosphere floating next to a sun that does coronal mass ejections. Like, we just don't get that thing. So there's there's a different emotional way of relating. And where the driver of all of it is the prima facie, the inherent sacredness of life that happens when you chill the fuck out of all the other agendas and disconnects and are just present with it. Like, those are the places where... If you come from there, the world, the, the sense-making and the activity is differently motivated and differently informed. Now, understanding the models is still really important. So this is a like heart, will, mind all working together. And it's pretty easy to see that any two of those three don't work, right? You get, you get mind and heart and no will, and you get really smart, caring, academics who feel broken and uh, hopeless at the impossibility of the world. You get heart and will without deep mental frames and you get activists who are willing to go like put their life at risk to chain themselves to a boat or whatever, but they don't know how to think through strategy at the scope of what has to change. You put will and mind together, but without heart where there's narrow value systems and you get the kind of sociopathic rule that currently runs the world that knows how to be highly strategic, knows how to be highly agentic, but to serve some narrow interests at the expense of somebody else. Like it takes all three of those together. And so what we're going to be talking about next time is some of the strategic frames the, or the theoretical frames that inform better strategy and not a specific strategy, but kind of meta strategy, meaning in whatever domain one happens to be working. And as the situation changes, that's where the theoretical frameworks come in. I don't, I think it was Bertrand Russell. I don't remember who said um, something to the effect of uh, if the if the 
only value of knowledge was its immediate clear utility, then just like mechanics would be the only thing really worth studying. Um, the reason one studies philosophy is not so much what you immediately do with it, but what it can do to you, what it can do to you in the way that you relate to all information and all situations from a deeper place. So some of the philosophic inquiry that we go into is not that someone now knows, okay, now I know how to do, fix climate change or the American democracy or Facebook. It's now I'm perceiving the world with more nuance and more complexity and from a different place whereby maybe the local PTA issue that I'm about to deal with, I'll have new insights on. And maybe the, you know, like all the things still need tended, all the local things need tended. There will be some people who are listening, who are institutional, um, you know, who work at major institutions, who are oriented to how do we change the financial system and legal system and regulate tech. Most of the people won't be working in those domains, but that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to understand the world we live in better. There's a relevance to have a better understanding of the world, even if you don't know what to do with it exactly, because it can help you perceive differently the situations that you're in and where you can do something with it. So when we get into these frameworks next time, it's not to give certainty about catastrophe. It's to understand the principles that are driving it well enough that you can see applications of them in all kinds of domains, think about those domains better and start to get a sense of what adequate solutions at scale might entail. Excellent. Okay. So that is all I had for this video today. That is those are the parts that I found to be most on topic here as we search for a cure. How may we orient ourselves to the world? I love that point he makes about this coming from wholeness will allow us to partake in all activities um, much more effectively, be they going to the local PTA meeting or working on larger institutional issues we all have a role to play and every single one of us is integral to how this whole thing plays out that butterfly effect is real and uh, I was just talking with my great friend Jesse the other day and he brought up how even how an interaction goes uh, with somebody at the checkout counter can change your whole day. I, I love this thought experiment. Um, just imagine meeting somebody and they give you this genuine smile and that person's given everyone a genuine smile and a hello when she or he sees them and it changes our day. You can imagine that somebody that has quite been out of shape after a long long, hard week, um, who perhaps has a lot of trauma in their past, experiences that genuine smile, that genuine caring, and instead of going home and abusing their family members, they go home a little bit more warm-hearted that day, and that person's child does not become the next school shooter. It's one smile wraps around the world, a truly genuine smile.
changes the world and everything we do ripples out every day I feel like we're saving the world and that there are so many special moments occurring that are keeping us from teetering further that we are able to somehow maintain this great experiment anyway I can barely keep my thoughts together at this point. It's getting late, but I uh, I think anybody for tuning in and look forward to being able to listen to this episode on all of the podcast channels. I'll have it uploaded tomorrow. Uh, but for those of you that joined for this live stream, I'm grateful. Thank you. Let's continue looking together. And even... If we are doomed to failure, let's do what feels most right and good for one and all anyway, so that we can go out like fireworks. We have so many saving graces, and it feels like this whole grand experiment of life on this planet has already largely been worth it, because we have come to be aside from our faults, such loving, gracious, creative beings. We write poetry, we make music, we appreciate sunsets and the child's smile, and we love animals, and we love the beauty of the world around us, and I do believe that we can do so much better than this and we have to we owe it to the world that comes after us and in fact it can be a great honor to serve this world to serve this miracle of life even if one is atheist how can't you be reverent filled with a deep sense of reverence and wonder for this infinite universe and the great mystery of self-awareness and the great beauty of love. So, speaking of love, love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Actual Eye Podcast. Talk to you soon.